Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Rabbanit Chava Evans in honour of her grandmother, Doris Killam. She should live and be well. Hello and welcome to the Your Torah Mishnah podcast. My name is Rabbanit Chava Evans and I'm speaking to you today from Washington, D.C., where the federal government may shut down, but our journey through the sixth Darim of Mishnah continues. So today we're going to study the tractate of Yivamot. Yivamot is the first book of Seder Nashim, the longest Mishnaic tractate in terms of total number of Mishnayot. Masechet Yivamot lays out the intricate laws of Leverite marriage. What is Leverite marriage, you might ask? Well, it has nothing to do with the caste of Leviim, nor does it have to do with the tribe of Levi. Rather, it's a Latin term, Levir, which means brother-in-law. In Hebrew, the root Yud Bet Mem forms several words that will be important to our study of this Masekta. First of all, Yibum, which is the process of marrying one's brother-in-law. Yibam, which is the brother-in-law to whom the widow is wed. And Yivama is the widow of the first brother who remarries the second brother. And I just want to caution you, if you're already a bit confused, it's very, very difficult to understand Tractate Yivamot without making some uh, diagrams or some little drawings of the family relations. So as we go through the material, I encourage you to just make some notes or some little family diagrams of the cases uh, that, we, that we sort of look at. Okay, so again, Leverite marriage, or Yibum, is the marriage between a widow whose husband died without offspring and the brother of the deceased. So a union of that sort is prescribed in Devarim 25 in Deuteronomy, where it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry a stranger, that is somebody outside of her husband's family. Her husband's brother shall take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her that is, perform yibum. And it shall be that the firstborn that she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother that is dead, that is, her first husband, that his name not be blotted out of Israel. Again, that's Devarim 25, 5 and 6, which is the proof text for yibum. So when the levir, when the brother-in-law, does not marry the yivama, for reasons that we'll consider a little later on, the ceremony of chalitza takes place. And once the process of chalitza is complete, the widow is released from the tie that binds her to her husband's family. And that tie, just to give you another uh, vocabulary term, is referred to as zikat yibum. At this point, after she has been released from that tie, she becomes free to marry someone outside of the family. And uh, we read about Halitza in, in Devarim 25.7 and following, where it says, If the man like not to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refused to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel, and he will not perform the duty of a husband's brother unto me, i.e., he refuses to perform yibum. Then the elders of the city 
shall call him and speak unto him, and then he stands and says, I like not to take her. Then shall his brother's wife draw nigh unto him, that is unto her brother-in-law, in the presence of the elders, and loose his shoe from off his foot, and spit in his presence. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that doth not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, The house of him that had his shoe loosed. Again, that's uh, Devarim 25, 7-10. Notice the, um, the importance of raising up the name of the dead brother. All of this, all of the process of Yibum or Chalitza is in the service of raising up a name for the man who died without a child. And one thing that I think is interesting about this biblical passage is the, the first part, which was about Yibum, ended with the phrase, this brother is dead, but his name should not be blotted out of Israel. And the second part, uh, the part about Chalitza, ends with the house of him that has his shoe loosed. That's how he should be called. So that's sort of a punishment because the brother-in-law did not raise up his dead brother's child and a name for his brother. Then he gets called by this pejorative term, the house of him that has his shoe loosed. It's kind of a nice sort of poetic justice. Um, Okay, let's pause for a minute and just kind of absorb that. So yeah, you heard that right. The widow takes off her shoe, sorry, takes off his shoe, throws it at her brother-in-law and spits on him. Essentially, this is a symbolic act of renunciation of the right to marriage, and it's a rather colorful way of shaming the brother-in-law publicly. Over the course of uh, a couple thousand years, the halacha has sort of seen a gradual decline of yibum, of the actual marriage of these two people, in favor of this second performance of chalitza to the point where, in most contemporary Jewish communities, including Israel, yibum is prohibited. So let's talk for a second about a couple of concepts that come along with the idea of yibum and that are seen again and again throughout the Mishnayot of Yivamot. Those two concepts are Iser Karet and the idea that yibum is a deoraita or a biblical commandment. So performing the act of marrying the widow of your dead brother when it's halakhically unnecessary is a really big no-no. And the technical halakhic term for a really big no-no is iser karet. Karet is the strictest biblical punishment. And it's usually translated as something like cut off or excised, as in you shall surely be cut off from your people. Karet is sort of like a psychic or a spiritual excision from both the people of Israel and a sort of a distancing from the God of the people of Israel. As Jews, we don't really have like a strong biblical notion of hell, but we do have this notion of a post-death excision. So one of the interesting things about the act of Yibum and the Mishnayot of Yibum is that under the right circumstances, the act of marrying your brother's widow is a biblical commandment of the highest order. However, if the same act is done unnecessarily, then it becomes an iser karet, a prohibited act. So this halakhic dynamic, where the same act could be either the fulfillment of a command or it could be a prohibited act, is really rather rare, and it's sort of characteristic of yivamot. So you can imagine that distinguishing between the cases where this marriage is required 
in the cases where it's not required, causes a lot of anxiety on the part of the rabbis. And you see that throughout the Masekta. So at this point, now that we've described the process of Yibum and the process of Halitza, and we've gone through the Pesukim, the verses that command Yibum or Halitza, you may be thinking that this sounds perhaps a little bit familiar. And biblically, it's true that there are stories that resemble rabbinic Yibum, but never exactly so. So the story of Judah and Tamar, for example, really does seem to indicate that the practice of Leverite marriage preceded Mosaic law, meaning that even before the Torah was given, that there was some idea of Yibum. However, in that story, it also suggests that the obligation to marry the widow of the childless man falls to the father of the deceased husband, which is not true of the rabbinic concept of Yibum. And then, of course, you have Ruth and Boaz, a story which also indicates Leverite marriage, But it appears that in that case, the duty of the Goel, or of the Redeemer, to marry Ruth is sort of incidental to the laws concerning the redemption of property, which is primary. So neither of those stories, neither the story of Judah and Tamar, nor the story of Ruth and Boaz, exactly match the rabbinic concept of Yibum, although they come close. So let's now flesh out some of the details of Yibum according to the Mishnah. And because this is such a long and intricate tractate, I'm actually not going to go through one Mishnah because they all sort of depend on each other. And again, they're very difficult to understand without some drawings and some uh, some visuals. So what I'm going to do rather than go through one Mishnah is I'm going to go through a bunch of concepts that get developed throughout the Mishnayot and that sort of flesh out the idea of Yibum as a rabbinic concept. So the first characteristic of Yibum is this word ben, or son, in Devarim 25. That gets interpreted in the Mishnah to mean offspring, generally, and not just a male child. So this means that Leverite marriage is only obligatory when the deceased husband leaves absolutely no offspring, either girls or boys, whether from the Yivama or from another wife. So that's one thing that gets developed in the Mishnah. Remember from the from the verses, if brothers dwell together, right, in the proof text, those get interpreted as confining the application of Yibum to the brothers of the dead who were born prior to his death, even if it's by as little as one day. I'm going to just say that again because it's kind of tricky. Brothers who dwell together from the verse gets interpreted as meaning brothers of the dead who were born prior to his death by as little as one day. So if there are no brothers, this poor woman, this Yivama, she has to wait until her infant brother-in-law reaches the age of 13 years in a day when he becomes legally fit either to marry her or to grant her chalitza. And you can imagine that that scenario is a little bit like being an aguna for 13 years. I mean, you know that there's going to be a way out, but you're sitting at home twiddling your thumbs and sort of waiting for your very, very young brother-in-law to come of age so that he can release you from this zikat yibum. So moving right along to the next characteristic of the Mishnaic or Tanaitic concept of yibum. So which brothers are involved? Um, according to the mission of the laws of Yibum apply only to the paternal but not to the maternal brothers. The obligation of Yibum or Chalitza falls to the oldest brother, although it's still valid if it is performed by, let's say, 
a younger brother. So it should be performed by brother number one, but if brother number three uh, steps up and performs it, that's, that's valid and she's released from her zika. Four, the idea of tsarot and tsarot tsarotehen. Tsarot refers to, or literally means troubles, but it refers to co-wives. It refers to multiple wives. So if the deceased brother has several wives, because remember at this point, polygamy is legitimate, is valid, um, then fulfillment of the obligation in respect to one of them suffices and exempts all of the other wives. So you only have to uh, perform Yibum with one of those wives, and then all of them go free. It's kind of interesting that while the Mishnah you know, condones having multiple wives, allows having multiple wives, technically it's permitted, but it doesn't really paint a very rosy picture of the reality of multiple wives because you've got this term, sarot, right, the troubles. So it seems like there are inherently uh, difficulties there. Okay, number five, uh, we spoke about this a little bit before, shomerit yivam and zika. So this tie, zika, between the yivama and the yivam arises immediately when the husband dies. And so from that moment on, until she undergoes uh, yibum or chalitza, the yivama is known as shomerit yivam. You can write that down in your vocabulary list. Shomerit yivam means that she's waiting yibum. She's awaiting yibum. And relations between the brother-in-law and any of her kin, any of her relatives, are prohibited as incestuous, as if he were already married to her. So just the fact that she needs to be in this relationship with him, with the brother-in-law, is the same as though they were already married. The Shomer Yavam does not have to undergo the Yibum or Chalitza until three months after the date of her husband's death. So there can be a little bit of a time between the time when the husband dies and the time when she undergoes yibum. During this time, she's entitled to an allowance from her husband's estate. So she is given some money to live on, so she's not in dire, dire need. Finally, there's this issue of kiddushin and the yavama. So according to biblical law, the brother-in-law does not require a formal marriage. He doesn't require a kiddushin to the yavama. But because of this like personal status tie, the zika, the connection between the two, between the widow and her brother-in-law, arises automatically on the death of the husband. And the rabbis prescribed that the yavama should be married like all other women. So they ordained that she should be married by means of either kiddushay kesef or shtar. Those are the two ways that she can get married. All right, now that we've gone through some of the different characteristics of Yibum in the Mishnah, we can talk a little bit about Chalitza, according to the Mishnah. So let's just remind ourselves that biblically, according to the Torah, the duty of Chalitza is imposed only when the brother-in-law willfully refuses to marry the Yivama, when he uh, doesn't do his duty by her, and not when he's unable to or prohibited from marrying her. So, for example, when the Leverite marriage is precluded because of a relationship that would be incestuous, the widow is also exempted from chalitza. According to Beit Hillel, if one of the deceased's, one of the, the husband's several wives, is prohibited from marrying the brother-in-law, then that woman who is prohibited exempts all of the other co-wives, all of the other tsarots, um, as well as the tsarotehen, as well as the co-wives of the co-wives, and we don't have time to get into what that means, but it sort of ripples out. On the other hand, Beit Shammai, 
believes that the co-wives are not exempt in this way. And that's actually the first, uh, the first Mishnah of the entire Masekta. On the other hand, it's determined that at times the duty of chalitza existed even where the levirate marriage is forbidden. So you take, for instance, um, the case of a priest and a divorcee. Um, and that we call a prohibition of holiness, which is referred to as an Isur Kedusha. In such a case, chalitza is still required because even if the marriage is prohibited, it is nevertheless valid once it has taken place. That's in the second chapter. Um, this rule also applies when there's a doubt, when there's a question about whether or not Leverite marriage is or is not incumbent on the widow, in which case chalitza then is required. And finally, in cases where the levir, where the brother-in-law is quite ill, or there's a big difference between the ages of the two parties, between the widow and her brother-in-law, then efforts are made to arrange for chalitza rather than for marriage. Chalitza releases the widow from the obligation of Leverite marriage, enables her to marry freely. She can marry whomever she wishes, uh, with one exception. The rabbis decreed that such a woman is prohibited from marrying a Kohen, a man of the priestly order. So it's as though she were a divorcee, halakhically, in some ways. Uh, the halitza ceremony itself in the Mishnah seems to be designed to shame the brother-in-law for not building up his brother's house, for not uh, raising up a name for his brother. And it can be seen as sort of an act of kinyan, an act of acquisition, whereby the widow buys from the brother-in-law the inheritance of her deceased brother. Or as a form of, I think this is more likely, it's like a form of mourning for the brother-in-law's brother because he's going to be forgotten. And now that he has no offspring, they're going to be raised in his name. Just to kind of follow the historical trajectory of Chalitza, the acceptance of Rabbeinu Gershom's decree, which prohibited polygamy among Ashkenazi Jews, apparently contributed toward the entrenchment of the rule that chalitza takes priority in order not to distinguish between a married and an unmarried levir, and Ashkenazi communities gradually came to adopt the practice of chalitza to the exclusion of levirate marriage. And finally, just to bring the whole historical thing to conclusion, in 1944, the chief rabbinate of Eretz Israel enacted a takana obliging the levir, the brother-in-law, to maintain the widow until he released her by Chalitza. And the Tekana was prompted by the fact that there was much difficulty and suffering arising from the prevalence of cases of Jewish women who were in need of Yibum and were placed in the position of Agunot, basically, because Chalitza had been withheld from them. And then, after that, there was a further Tekana of the chief rabbinate uh, in 1950, which completely prohibited the practice of Yibum in Israel and made Chalitza obligatory. Okay, what can you learn or sort of the practical take-homes from this tractate? And you'd think that because it's kind of an esoteric topic, it's not something that we do very much anymore in the case of Chalitza, and we don't do it all in the case of Yibum, um, what sort of practical halachot are there to learn? And in fact, there are quite a few. It turns out that most of the material, the rabbinic material on conversion, can be found not in the Mishnah of Yevamot, but in the Tot, which are embedded within the Gemara. And then they're also found in the Mesekta Katana of Gerim, which has some of the same material as the Breite in, in Yevamot. And that's where 
we get most of our laws of conversion. I mean, certain questions that get asked are really relevant. For instance, how do you determine lineage? Or uh, what constitutes sexual relationships? Those are things that you're going to need to know generally, halachically, and those are also found in Yevamot. Another question, what is the nature of mamzerut? What counts as a viable fetus? So all of these are sort of questions that get asked and answered within the hundred plus pages of the Talmud on Yevamot, and all of those are really useful halachot. Um, I want to focus actually on one practical halacha, which is waiting between uh, marriage and remarriage. So for all women, Chazal establish a waiting period of three months between the end of one marriage and the beginning of another. Essentially, that's, it's like a way to establish paternity. Chazal assume that if a woman is pregnant, then it becomes really obvious around three months, which seems kind of reasonable. And if we wait three months, the thought goes, then we'll know that she's pregnant before she remarries. And this allows hubby number two to know beforehand that he's signing up to take care of somebody else's baby, which seems pretty reasonable to me. <laughs> um, something you might want to know before you tie the knot. The rule also makes remarriage for women, first of all, possible. Second of all, less stressful uh, because there's a procedure in place to deal with the uncertainty of second marriage. And there's a way to mitigate the sort of stigma attached to remarriage, right? So there's a way to really tell now she's uh, marriageable. So further, that three-month waiting period is designed to avoid, I mean, really, this is the, the car, the most important thing. It's really designed to avoid questions of paternity. So let's say you didn't wait three months and you got married after a month. Two months into the second marriage, you discover that the woman is pregnant. In a world without ultrasounds or DNA testing, we have no way of knowing whether the father of the baby is husband one or husband two. This creates absolute chaos. So you might ask, why is it important to know who the father is? After all, Judaism uses the matra line. We use the female line to establish membership in the clan. That's all well and good, but paternity... <laughs> For instance, determines inheritance, which is really important. Paternity also establishes whether a child is a Levi, a Kohen, or a Yisrael. And a child is going to want to know whether he's bound to the duties and restrictions of one of those groups. If he, he can't tell his paternity, he doesn't know, you know whether or not, for instance, he can marry a divorcee or a convert. Finally, there are certain paternal relatives who are usher for one to have sexual relations with. So if the son doesn't know who his father was or is, he might mistakenly sleep with one of those women who is forbidden to him, and that, again, would cause problems and general chaos. So notice that all of these reasons to establish paternity are general reasons, and they're not specific, they don't specifically apply to the case of Chalitza or Yibum. But there is a specific concern about paternity in the case of Yibum. So remember that we talked a little bit about the fact that the Yivama is only obligated to perform yibum if she did not have a viable offspring with the first husband. So the whole reason for yibum is to raise up the son in the name of that first father. And this, the biblical obligation has to override the prohibition of having relations with your husband's brother. And that only happens when yibum is necessary, when it's halakhically mandated. And yibum is only necessary if there was no child from the first marriage. So if the widow is pregnant from the first husband, then there's no obligation to remarry. And in fact, she would then be performing an Isser Karet by marrying this brother-in-law. So there are some of the highlights flying over at 20,000 feet of the Mishnah of Yibamot. It's a 
fascinating tractate and really dense and complicated and intricate. So I hope that this encourages you to go out and learn more and have a wonderful day. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.